This is the Feed the Ball Podcast. I'm Derek Duncan, Associate Editor of Architecture at Golf Digest Magazine. You're listening to Episode 72, and my guest is Donald Steele. In golf architecture, there are a few rules of thumb that most accept as the fount of inspiration. They form the gospel of Lynx golf that extols the virtues of improvisation, invention, and ingenuity in shot making. It also believes that the golf course should be part of its surroundings, blending as imperceptibly as possible with the landscape. Only as a last resort should the landscape be transformed to accommodate the golf course. Good courses protect the environment. Bad designs disfigure it. These are the words of Donald Steele, the eminent British architect and writer who's been an omnipresent figure in golf since the early 1960s. At heart, he's been a golf traditionalist, a man whose viewpoint on the game sprouted equally from a reverence for Lynx golf, the literature of great authors like Bernard Darwin, and a deep appreciation for how the game is played at the highest levels, on the greatest courses, and in the most important moments. Here Steele continues on the motivations of design. Quote, Golf course architecture should be the art of the possible. Making courses impossible is easy. Spectacular holes undoubtedly lift any course, but enjoyment is the watchword, and golfers find little enjoyment in losing balls attempting long carries over water or a knee-high rough. Too much modern architecture is the slave to color, irrigation, power, and the lob wedge. It conforms to a sterile formula that is a betrayal of the belief that there should be more than one way of approaching any shot. Unquote. And that's music to my ears. Steele has been an influential and important figure in golf since 1961 when he broke into the business as the golf reporter for the new Sunday Telegraph, a position he held remarkably until 1990. Following that, he became the golf correspondent for Country Life magazine, only the fourth writer to hold that esteemed position after Horace Hutchinson, Bernard Darwin, and Pat Ward Thomas. I first encountered his writing as a teenager when I found the first edition of the World Atlas of Golf, in which Steele wrote in the front of the book a seminal history of the evolution of golf and golf design. You might be interested in hearing more of a deeper discussion of that great book on the Good Good Podcast, episode 21. You can find that through your favorite podcast provider, and I've provided a link for it in the show notes. Steele has since, in addition to all his reporting on tournament golf, written numerous books, including a memoir, The Thin End of the Wedge and editing Fred Hawtrey's seminal Simpson & Company book about the architect Tom Simpson. Steele was an accomplished amateur player who was qualified for the Open Championship and won several President's Putter competitions, which we talk about in the podcast. Tournament golf and the way the legends of the game play it is ingrained in the way he thinks not just about golf in general, but also golf design. He joined the design firm of Cotton, Pennink & Lowry in the mid-1960s and helped design and remodel dozens of courses through the various iterations of that office until 1987 when he opened his own firm. In the late 1990s, he became close to the hospitality entrepreneur Peter de Savari and went on to design a number of high-profile private clubs for him, including the Carnegie Club at Skibo Castle near Dornick, Carnegie Abbey in Rhode Island, the Abaco Club in the Bahamas, and the exclusive Cherokee Plantation in South Carolina. His most high-profile American design came in 2006 with the Highland Course at Primland, a lovely resort cutting across the tops of mountain bluffs in Virginia. Around that same time, he hired two young British architects, Martin Ebert and Tom McKenzie, 
who have taken over his business and practice and have gone on to become arguably the preeminent remodeling and restoration firm in all the UK. I could go on and on about Donald Steele, but suffice it to say he's lived one of golf's richest and most wide-ranging lives. This discussion barely scratches on the surface of what there is to talk about, given all of his experience, but we did hit on a variety of topics and ideas. It was a real pleasure for me to be able to spend some time with Donald over Skype, and I hope you get as much out of this talk for history, for stories, architectural insight, and for enjoyment as I did. He's a wonderful gentleman. Here's Donald Steele. At least Trump's a golfer, anyway. <laughs> Did you see that he's uh, trying to build another golf course uh, outside of Aberdeen to go with Trump International? Well, I, I have heard that, yes, but I, I, you know, I don't know quite what the demand is. I mean, this year, although golf has been very active, and I was talking to a guy in Sweden this morning, and he said the golf has gone absolutely crazy this, this summer. They've been playing like no tomorrow, you know, so... There is the demand, and a lot of clubs have been gaining members rather than losing them, which is good. So. Yeah, golf is one of those, I guess, parts of, of the economy that has really thrived during this time. It's strange. Over here in, in our country, golf numbers are up across the board, and more people are coming into the game. It'll be very interesting to see if, if they remain with golf, if this is the thing that really gets it over the, over the precipice and becomes popular again, or if everybody goes back to work when this is over. Well, Scotland and Ireland's economy depend particularly on golf, and they must have, you know, missed out a lot in, in that respect this summer. But yeah, uh, well, you've had however. you've had experience working on um, SSSI sites and getting things permitted and golf permitting. It seems like, yeah. especially up around Aberdeen in, in northern Scotland, where uh, Trump is uh, at least talking about building a second course, uh, another course up near. Uh, Skibo Castle and the Carnegie Club, where you built a golf course, uh, recently yeah. was denied a permit called Cool Links, uh, Mike Kaiser's endeavor. How, how realistic is it that Trump, just to use him as an example, could get a, a course permitted in that environment? Well, <laughs> I don't know. But there was a certain amount of controversy with, with his other one near Aberdeen, yeah. and that, that was, uh, um, he got special sort of permission who who overthrew the sort of environmental issues and so on and uh, so he got that call and so I, I I don't know I mean it's um there's no reason why he shouldn't if provided it meets with all the constraints of the environment and the SSSIs and all the rest of it but mm -hmm. uh, anything that gets into into dunes is always a little bit more sensitive I guess but uh, there's always a the thought that they might be damaging them rather than retaining them but of course with golf if you had dunes, you want to make the most of them, so not not destroy them. But uh, but the one at uh, beyond Dornoch, that seems to be. I, I can't understand quite why they 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 argue. And, and um, there are, although it's a great, the opponents can be quite uh, vociferous and quite strong. I guess. But uh, yeah, I, but I you know what, Yeah, it, the, the, those environmental issues really. Are, are personal to people, and they people people yeah. get very animated when they think about uh, imposing on nature any more than we already are. But I've always thought that golf is one of the best custodians of a natural environment that that you could possibly have. 
Absolutely, in every way, shape, and form, and the ecology and the the animals and the birds and everything else. I mean, they're they're fantastic. They do an amazing job. In fact, all our links courses, it's a great way to preserve that type of country. And uh, if they uh, hadn't been developed, then um, they'd be completely uh, deserted and uh, nobody would really be aware of them. But golf does take us to some of the most beautiful places on earth. You know, that's its great strength, isn't it, really? And every every location is different. That's the great thing about golf. There are no two that are the same. And there are similarities, but that's it. That's the way it should be anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's why it's a great, it's a lifetime of uh, exploration, isn't it? And yeah, you could follow golf around the world and, and see some amazing places, different countries, different cultures. Yeah. And it's a, it's a it's a worldwide language. So if you go and play golf in, in some of the smaller countries of the world, they can still you know know what three putts is and all this sort of thing. So there is a common bond and language. Absolutely. Well, listen, I wanted to one thing I find is so interesting to you is you were born in 1937, and when you were a young boy, you lived through World War II and and the Blitz and the bombing of London, and then I'm certain the years following that through the end of the war. Uh, were difficult times with with rationing and just the uncertainty of it. Does that, living through that, because I don't get a chance to talk to too many people who have that experience that you have, does that lay some kind of foundation or uh, a level of perseverance inside you that you carry with you your entire life? And uh, Or was it so long ago that, that it, it's just a distant memory from what you can remember of it? Very far from a distant memory. I mean, it was a, a way that you were brought up. I mean, because you didn't know anything different, then you you just accepted it as normal. Um, the fact that bombs were dropping and all this type of thing, you didn't perhaps realize the danger you, you were in. Um, my father was a doctor, surgeon, physician, administrator of the hospital. And, um, you know, we were very limited in the, the sort of... Uh, uh, leisure activities that we could have, although we had a very good sc- scholastic uh, upbringing. But the one joy was the fact that he played golf and that on a Wednesday afternoon, come rain or shine, he would try to get a game on a Wednesday afternoon. And the older we got, the more uh, he uh, inclined us to, to to go out with him and in those days pull his trolley. Um, the golf course was very rudimentary, it had been badly hit by the war and it was reduced in size, but you know, it was just simply the, the, something to look forward to. And then when we were allowed to have a shot ourselves and play ourselves, you know, it, it opened a, a new dimension. And so in, in that sense, although we came up in difficult times, golf has always been with us and it's it stayed with us. My brother was a good player. My father was keen um he wasn't a great player, but he was you know, good enough to want us to do well. And then one of the great um, things in my life was that uh, the appointment of a new golf professional at Denham Golf Club, which is where I went. It was known for its film studios, and then the J. Arthur Rank, the Denham Film Studios. But this was a fellow called John Sheridan who had come back from the war, and he was appointed as our um, club professional. And he was such an inspiration and... Uh, and he um, used to hold junior instruction classes in days when you know nobody had really ever heard of it. Um, and that's one aspect of golf which has improved out of all recognition is the actual tuition and how many people now, all the kids get 
they learn at a very early age and it, it stays with you. So that was a, a great uh, landmark and John Sheridan remained at the golf club for over 50 years. And so it wasn't just that I um, played golf, but because of I played golf that I was then able to um, play at university and then to get a job with a, a new newspaper in London in 1961. And then as a result of that, to become a golf course architect. So it all hinged and sprung from <laughs> from that moment. And uh, so, you know, it was a, I look upon it with great joy rather than sadness, you know. Of course. And we came through the war and that was it. That was great. I guess I'm asking, and this is a, a little bit away from golf, and then we'll get certainly get into, into golf and, and your career in a moment. But I'm just wondering if, given that experience and that, that foundational experience that, that you had as a boy, if if that helps you at all or gives you any insight into our current climate. I mean, you're at, you're, are you 83 now, I believe? And the world probably seems a lot different than it did even 20 or 30 years ago. There's so much happening. Things have changed so much. Does, does it, does that help provide a level of wisdom or acceptance or <laughs> help you cope well, with what we're going so. through? But you have to move with the times, really. And, and, you know, you're a traditionalist at heart, but you realize that the game has moved on, and boy, has it moved on. So you don't stand in its way. You try to be part of it. And so, yeah, I mean, that, that was the greatest possible sort of foundation one could have had, really. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I always felt very much part of golf. But, uh, you've, you've written and, and expressed... Um this idea and this belief in traditional golf values and, and having that be sort of your foundation in relation to golf. Is it possible to really carry those old golf traditions? And maybe we need to define what those mean to you, but is it possible for those to coexist in, in the current golf climate? You mentioned we need to move ahead and evolve, but sometimes it seems when you look at the way the world is playing golf now, and there's so much emphasis on the professional game, it, it doesn't seem to match up very easily or well with what many people would consider traditional golf or traditional golf values or Lynx golf values. Are they compatible anymore? Or are we drifting too far apart? I think they are drifting apart, but they are compatible. I mean, the tradition that I regard is, is actually the traditional golf courses, which were our links, and they haven't really changed in character all that much. And because they were the courses on which we were brought up and played a lot of our competitive golf, we still look upon them as as, as the best. I mean, if you had a choice, then you'd probably go and choose a tra traditional course. But the great joy of, of the way golf has evolved is the fact that it now is played in every single country under every different setting under the sun. And um, that that is the great thing. It's spread. It couldn't be spread if you were trying to um, extend the, the traditional principles um, uh, and that is I think a great credit to, to golf um, whether it's got a bit too far in places and all that type of thing golf courses you know, have to be geared to the um, existing um, state of uh, equipment and so on and the, and the distance the ball goes and as a result um, all forms of architecture have um, been geared to equipment um, and it's had to adjust to the fact that as the ball has changed from the gutty to the from the feathery to the gutty to the rubber core and so on and then it's got bigger and better and, and uh, from the days when 200 yards was a good drive now you get these guys hitting best part of 400 so um, courses have got to adjust and, and it's all a question of scale but the question is 
the proportion and, and can the golf courses uh, cater, you know, um, that's why I think that, you know, there, there's the debate and it's always run about whether, you know, the ball does go too far and, and you know, what is too far sort of thing. But um, It's a uh, tricky subject because on one hand, yes, you do have this escalation in the distance that the best players hit the ball. I mean, they could, they sometimes can carry the ball 350 yards or maybe not quite that much yet, but that's coming if not here already. And yet at the same time, you have the vast majority of players who still drive the ball. I think that their studies have shown that the average male golfer drives the ball like 215 yards, which hasn't changed much, despite all the the great drivers and ball equipment that we've seen in the last 30 years. The shorter you hit the ball, the more likely you are to hit the fairway, aren't you, really? I mean, because Mm -hmm. you don't have the path to to, to hit it, you know, uh, wayward. But it's really a question of... uh, can the golf courses go on defending himself? Do you like to see long par fours dismissed to a three wood and a wedge? You know that sort of thing. What is the ideal test? And it's a it's a very difficult balance to strike. Um, uh, but the, the golf courses are the most important thing. They've got to retain their both their challenge and their enjoyment, really. So. Um, well, where where they, do you come uh, out on that? Would you are you in favor of of some sort of limitation on technology or asking the professionals to play a different ball? I wouldn't want the professionals to play a different ball. I don't see any sense in that. But I've always argued that it's very important to keep control of of the situation. And I'm talking about going back into the sixties and seventies. I could show you things I wrote then about you know warning signs. And our golf pro that I've just mentioned, he was always one to say, you know, you've got to keep keep your eye on that. Um, so, um, y- yes, I mean, it, it is a, probably the most critical thing in, in the game, really. Um, but it's a question of not the length, but the control. I mean, there have always been guys who hit it offline, like Arnold Palmer and Seve and Tiger, for that matter. Uh, but the thrill of watching them was the fact that... Um, you know they they were great ones for escape uh, uh, and recovery and uh, the joy of watching them was because you never knew what was coming next whereas with Hogan you knew exactly who was going to knock down the middle and on the green and so on but when you look at um, when Hogan won our open at Carnoustie in 1953 the course was over 7,000 yards then and in his final round of 68 um, he had 30 putts um, and he hit 13 drivers and I think two, three woods off the tee. Um, and most of his second shots were long arms or woods or I think a five arm was probably the, the least. But, you know, that w- was a tremendous demand and a tremendous test. And that's the sort of um, success that you want to see our uh, players achieve if they're going to win. Um, I remember Tom Watson when he won the Open in '83. Came to the last hole and he had to hit a drive and a two-iron onto the green, uh, make his four and win. Now, if you can do that, that's uh, <laughs> the ultimate test, and you deserve to win. But um, so it's really a question of do today's players, you know, get it too easy, or right? You could say the further people hit the ball. Um, the more likely they are to go offline, and it's only got to be slightly offline for it to be, you know, off the fairway. But um, you do like to think that people, the fairways are there to be hit, and that, um, um, 
the, the reward is for hitting them rather than for, for missing them. But uh, nowadays, of course, when you watch Shambo with his pitching wedges, I mean, he can claw it out 140, 50 yards. So, of course, he's going to you know, go full belt you know, off the tee. Um, and maybe the pitching wedges, maybe that's something that needs to be looked at. Uh, Sevi, for instance, always said that you should only be allowed one pitching wedge. Mm-hmm. Or, Jack Nicholas hit a pitching wedge, I think, 110 yards. Well, that's an awful difference. And so there has been a dramatic change. And I think the uh, manufacturers have outfoxed the um, authorities, really. You know, I don't think they ever thought that they could go on producing a ball that go further. All right. You could say, well, the players are that much fitter. And, and, you know, there are all sorts of other uh, things that go into the, um, the... uh, equation, um, but it's still, you know, remarkable. Gary Player was the only one who used to do exercises and fitness because he needed to build up his strength, um, and that's a long time ago. And they used to laugh at him, but the laugh was on him. When you now see, that's what everybody does. But Gary, I suppose, hit it two sixty, two seventy, something like that, off the tee. It's it's just hard though because now I mean even as you're talking I'm I know exactly what you're saying and yet there doesn't seem to be any recourse for what's happening it's it's hard to imagine that uh, it, the game is going to voluntarily uh, retract and and pull these distances back and and if you and like you said I saw uh, not too long ago I was watching a, I think a Presidents Cup from the mid 90s it wasn't that long ago and Greg Norman one of the longest players of his time is approaching a par five from, I think it was 230 yards with a three wood or three metal. And that was like, that's what he hit it back then. That's a five iron now. Greg Norman was one of the best drivers of the ball. And I think the period in the 1980s was the one when, if I had been the dictator, that's when I'd have stopped the clock because um, that seemed to me when golf courses could cope, it was still a, a big demand. There were people like Seve and Faldo and Nick Price and uh, Greg Norman himself, Tom Watson, um, Sandy Lyle, Bernard Lay. You know, they were they were very good players, and uh, that seemed to be, uh, you know, hitting the ball, two eighty for a drive, that sort of thing. As you say, just making it with with a three wood. That seemed to be the ideal challenge to me. Whereas since then, the balance has tipped rather in the wrong direction as far as I'm aware, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Still trying to protect the integrity of the golf courses. That's what's... Mike Clayton, the the Australian architect and former European yeah, tour sure. player, has said that he thought he thinks that around the 1980s was the, the era when the equipment and the golf courses and the architecture were perfectly matched as best as they yeah. could be with each other. There was a, They were on equal footing at that point in time. And ever since then, the equipment has has uh, overwhelmed golf courses and golf course architecture. Along with that, and Greg, uh, Jeff Ogilvy is another one who speaks up. The, the Australians are very good. Yeah, for, they have a pretty good golf instinct, don't they, most of them? Yeah. But if you think golf is traditional in Britain, you go to Melbourne and, you know, what we think is hard and fast, they think is soft and slow, you know. <laughs> they're fantastic. And those Melbourne courses are amazing. But right. uh, uh, And Mike Clayton, of course, played in about that sort of time. I mean, I remember reporting for the paper and you know um he, he was one of those who was um came over from australia you know so yeah absolutely yeah well this brings us to a, a another debate or a point of 
of, of interest, I, I guess I'll put it that way. In regards to the professional game, do you think that, that we put too much emphasis on on what the professionals are doing? And it relates to architecture. In, and you've had many uh, jobs or, or roles as an advisor to, to many courses around the world, especially in the UK and, and Ireland. And one thing that happens, it happen, we see it probably more in the United States than anywhere, is that a, a club will start to react to what they perceive this small fraction of players is doing and then start to adjust bunkers or move tees or really retrofit their golf course or or future fit their golf course to react in a, to, to a very small percentage of people who can hit the ball a certain distance. And especially, it's, it's a sensitive subject it's, to me, especially when you think about like old links courses, which should, I mean, I will ask you, but I think, you know, they should just be left alone. And, and but, but then again, there's the, the, the concern that if they aren't adjusted in some manner, they won't be relevant to the professional game, which is why people watch golf and, and it generates excitement. So where's the balance there? When can, when should architects and architecture as a field say, we're not going to disturb this. We'll just let us be. And if the pro game has to move on and pass us by, we're going to be okay with that. Well, I think the, the pros are our heroes and they're the people you look up to and you try to emulate. The great thing with golf courses is that you can set up five golf courses within one by different tees. And I, I do believe that you know, a lot of people try to play off the wrong tee and so on. So if you're designing a golf course, you always start out off the back tees to see how it would play for the best players um, because you're trying to produce a golf course that um, you know is, is of the highest challenge um, and um, you then as you go forward you you ask the same question about whether the carries and the width of fairways and that sort of thing are all right for everybody because the greatest golf courses are set up to produce challenge and enjoyment f for everybody. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't think one can be accused of, uh, um, you know, playing uh, up to the, the, the professionals. Uh, but, you know, they're the ones who set the example and the ones that, you know, we all try to follow. And uh, so, um, yeah, and again, it depends a little bit on the type of golf course you've got on the terrain and that all... Um, these are all the questions that you have to ask yourself when you're designing, you know, whether you're making it uh, fair and, and uh, enjoyable and uh, challenging for every class of golfer. You know, you need to expect everybody to be able to have a certain degree of ability. Otherwise, you know, you can't play the game. They, they'd be somewhere else. But, um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah I, I, guess I, I guess for me, the the way I look at it is, I'm, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm being romantic when I think this way, but I'd almost rather see clubs and even architects say, no, thank you. We're going to leave our golf course the way it is. And maybe it'll maybe it's going to be obsolete to a certain percentage of or a certain category of player. And you'll have to take your tournament somewhere else next year. But we're going to just leave well enough alone. Well, I think even for the best amateurs, you've got to keep, um, you know, the, the pitch fairly high. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think every club likes the idea of um, having big tournaments every now and then. That helps uh, the, to maintain the popularity and the rankings of, of those golf courses. Um, if they, <coughs> excuse me, if they, um, 
don't want um, to do anything to their golf course, that's fine. But I think they're on the whole in the minority very much. I, I think golf courses, club members have a pride. And although they might um, say, oh, they don't like to have tournaments coming, they still like to to, to boast about, you know, um, the fact that Arnold Palmer comes or Tiger Woods or whatever. So I think there is a great pride. Um, and that's one of the nice things about golf. I think that um, the, the makeup of, of private clubs is, is very nice. When you look at the golf courses that currently host the Open Championship, the Rota, I'm, I'm not sure how many there are now, eight, nine or so, are they going to have to keep making adjustments to their architecture looking into the future? Or, or what, another way to look at it would be what would happen if they did nothing? And they still well, have the events there. You've always got to keep them fresh. I mean, when I was asked during the 90s, I used to try to keep things, uh, uh, the changes, as as little as possible. Um, and uh, nowadays, they tend to think that maybe this is because the ball does go further and further. Those changes need to be a little bit more. I think the choice of golf courses to, to choose for the, the Open, there seems to be a trend that they will only be there on locations where they will get the, the maximum financial return and they get the biggest possible crowd attendance, um, which is something like 200,000. Whereas courses like sort of Turnbury, the ones that are a little bit further out, they, they, they don't necessarily um, bring in the crowds. Um, uh, I think even Carnoustie is actually in that bracket, although it would be terrible to think that Kunusi was ever taken away because it's probably the hardest course of the lot. So. Yeah, I think that's true. I want to go back to, go back into your past a little bit now, and we'll come back to architecture in, in a minute. You were one of the as a as a young player, you were very accomplished. You won won some tournaments and were a very uh, uh, accomplished amateur player. You won the President's Putter uh, twice, if I'm not mistaken. A lot of our listeners, a lot of my listeners on this podcast might have heard of that, or maybe they haven't. But uh, can you explain what the President's Putter is and what kind of event that was and what, what happened when you played in that? Is it, I won it three times, actually. Okay, three <laughs> times. I'm sorry. And it's contested by the members of the Oxford and Cambridge Golfing Society, which means that you have to go, you have to have been at either Oxford and Cambridge or Cambridge and played in their golf team. And then you join the society and the President's Putter is a competition for all ages, all generations, although it's predominantly um, dominated by the, the younger element, mm -hmm. which is not, not a surprise. And it is played in January, which a lot of people think is absolutely dead, dead crazy. Um, but it's the only time in the calendar where the, those people could all get together. It would be between the university um, <coughs> terms and... Uh, this year, um, the only golf tournament that was finished in England of any note between then and August was the President's Butter, well <laughs> in before the coronavirus. Uh, but it's it's a it's a, a passion for people who play in it. It's always um, it's a gathering, but the, the eminence is always upon uh, the priority is on. It's a serious golf competition. Um, 
they have to put up with quite a lot of uh, bad weather over the years. On the other hand, there can be nothing nicer than um, a good January day to play golf. And, and they've all also had a, a huge number of, of lovely days as well. So uh, it's um, it has some very good players um, over the years, international players, particularly in the in the very early days when Bernard Darwin was writing. And it's now just about 100 years old, the, the putter this year, I think, the first one that was played. People like Roger Weather and Cyril Tolley, uh, Leonard Crawley, they a lot of Walker Cup players. Um, uh, and um, so it, they're the people who contest it. And it's one of those tournaments that most people would never miss. You're either a putter man or you don't. Right. David Dormoyle, who I'm sure you know, he comes over every year from from uh, New York or wherever. Uh-huh. <laughs> he wouldn't miss it. But uh, And it's held, also, it, it's held at Rye. So it's still gathering. And although you play hard, it starts by 5 o'clock. So then you've got another day just beginning when you all get together and you have a nice dinner and you play bridge and all sorts of things. And so, you know, it, it is a great uh, gathering. But you will then also have to remember that you've got to be on the tee at 7.30 mm-hmm. in the morning and maybe there could be some issues with that occasionally to play down the the weather issue but forget it it's only ever been um cancelled once they had to sometimes um hold it over they played four or five rounds and then have to finish it in march but that's very rare funny enough the two years the two of the years that i won it did have to finish <laughs> in march and we because it was <laughs> snowing in january but uh, no it's a wonderful it's one of the famous things and it, it's one of the, the the competitions which underlines the true spirit of golf, really, I think. You know, people go out for the fun of playing. And uh, a bit like the Halford Hewitt, which is played a deal in in April, that's a, an old schools thing, and it's a, a foursome thing. But, you know, again, foursomes are so rarely played, but it, it's, it's a lovely game, um, not least for the fact that you can get round in half the time that it takes to play a four ball. That's so right. you can play two rounds. So golf's gone a bit crooked in the sense that it's dominated by five-hour four balls and six-hour four balls and so on. And that's not good for the game. And that's partly because the golf courses have gone a bit too long as well. So it, it is all a, a bit of a vicious circle. It's connected so. for sure. I had just been reading um, Herbert Warren Wynn's account of one of the president's putters, a famous essay he wrote. And the way he wrote it, 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 it sounded like a pretty fun event to be at. Oh, yes. I think I was there when Herb came. Herb was a very great friend of mine. And uh, uh, I remember him being particularly um, struck. Um, Alistair Cook also came. And, you know, Alistair Cook used to do Letter from America. And I think he did a very historical television program in America, didn't he? But... Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Herb, Herb was overjoyed because Herb also went to Cambridge, and so he, he knew a little about the traditions. And uh, um, I, I think it's probably true that there are certain Americans, by no means all, but they do slightly envy the <laughs> the old tradition, that type of golf, which is something that they don't see terribly often. And uh, um, there's a new dinner match golf society. I don't know whether you know about that, but mm-hmm. that's example of those who you know who like to get together to play that type of golf they don't like to force it on other people but that's just a preference and it's totally nice to see from our point of view yeah and it'd be it would be nice if 
more people could be exposed to that one way or another. It's just, I think it's just a matter of letting people know that that's an alternative. That's an option to play that way. It's, we get so, as, as you referenced, we get so stuck into metal play mindset and even just for our casual rounds, but there are other alternatives to the game that if, especially um, American players, if we would be exposed to that or be in an environment where we could play different formats, I think it would become very popular. I don't play down the metal side of things. I think all golf has got to be competitive, and there's nothing better in the world, or whatever the 24 handicap stroke guys. Play, I should uh, say. Yeah, okay, but I mean, they pretend that they oh, they don't play. But there's one thing that sets the, the, the biggest delight in golf is a really good score, isn't it? You say I did six, 78 less eight, you know, 70 or yes, 90 less absolutely. 3 and I won, the, beaten everybody, and that. Uh, is the, one of the great satisfactions that golf provides. Uh, That's yeah. what keeps people coming back most of the time. Yeah. It's yeah, a never-ending quest to, to improve. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are clubs in America that, um, well, perhaps they're changing. I, I mean, um, Pebble Beach, uh, not Pebble Beach, um, Cyprus, uh, well, that's a very private course, none, not sort of competitive, but, you know, they, they play for the, for the fun of the game, Um I don't think they keep their score there very often, but uh, uh, Pine Valley is another one. But Pine Valley's changed a little bit. I, I'm actually a member of Pine Valley, but I've only been there once, sadly, since 1983. They're giving you a break uh, on your dues. <laughs> you actually have some very uh, strong competitive um, competitions, I think. And so, uh, uh, yeah. Um, Speaking of, of writing in your career, you this I was I get a kick out of this. You began writing for a new, a new newspaper, the Sunday Telegraph, in 1961 mm-hmm. as their their golf right. journalist, their golf reporter, and you had uh-huh. that job through 1990. That is a that is a hell of a, a career, and I can only imagine the amount of tournaments that you saw and mentioned a little while ago about uh, you referenced Arnold Palmer and Ben Hogan all the way through the, the 80s and, and that great era, of, especially of European players, you must have some great stories. Who was the most exciting golfer for you to cover? Who gave you the best content? I think um, you're always most impressionable when you're young. And I started uh, right out of the blue. I mean, I, I hadn't any experience of writing. There was a new newspaper setting up. Um, they knew that uh, they thought that I might help the, the guy who was on the Daily Telegraph, which was the, the same ownership that they were creating a Sunday uh, paper which was distinctive that I might help him um, as, uh, as his assistant that was Leonard Crawley who was a very celebrated amateur golfer himself um, uh, but they said no they didn't want to do that so I said well that'll let me out and they said no I think you should just you know allow your name to go forward and I think a lot of kind people put a, a word in in the background <laughs> And eventually they said, "Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll offer you the job on a, um, a, a, a pr- preliminary basis." Um, and luckily, that temporary became permanent. And the first two summers that I was writing golf, Arnold Palmer won the Open. So there, you couldn't have had a better kickoff than that. He won at Birkdale in terrible weather. Um, you probably remember when he hit the second shot. They left a plaque on the 16th or 15th, where it was, um, and the weather blew like hell, and uh, all the tents were blown down on the first uh, or the second day. Um, the, the thing was to finish on a Friday in those days, 
And so it then meant that they lost the day, so they had to finish on Saturday, which was good from my point of view, because it meant the Sunday papers had first um, coverage of, <laughs> of the result. <laughs> right. They also said that if it didn't finish on Saturday, it would be null and void because they couldn't play on a Sunday. So that, that was quite a dramatic open. And then the following year, um, he, he won at Troon by the length of a street. He and Kel Nagel were the two that um, fought it out. It's when it was Jack's first open. He only just qualified. But um, so you had the, the complete contrast then of uh, uh, how to win win the open. Um, and at, at Troon, it was on hard ground, whereas the day the year before it was. Uh, blowing like hell and as soft as, as anything. So that was fine. Then, of course, the 60s was the year of the era of, of, of development. It was quite a rapid development. And of course, you then had Palmer and then Nicholas came on the scene and, and Player and De Vicenzo and Lima. That was a very dramatic open in 1964. Um, so they were fantastic years to get your teeth into. I bet. But all, in those days, you were able to write about and play in some of the amateur events. You cover some of the ladies' events, and so you've got a, a very comprehensive overall picture of the golfing scene. And so it was a wonderful way of, of growing up. Incidentally, um, when Lima won, I mean, that was, you know, this guy arrived on Monday afternoon, they started on a Wednesday. <laughs> he hadn't seen St. Andrews before. And, you know, he hardly had a practice round, and I'm not sure he he putted into the hole. He had Arnold Palmer's caddy, Tip Anderson, because Arnold didn't come in 64, um, and he won by six, seven shots. So much so that the committee, Chantry Committee, wondered whether, um, you know, the old course of St Andrews was losing its, um, its bite. And that's a debate that's gone on and on and is still raging, but... Um, they said that they didn't really mind what happened. Um, major change was uh, uh, unthinkable, and minor change was not really worthwhile. But they said as long as it's, they go on w with the Opens at St Andrews being won by the best players, then they had no arguments. And, and the best players, as it happened, um, after um, Lima's Open, were Nicholas Nicholas, Ballesteros, Daly, Woods, Woods, Bruce Tazen and Zach Johnson. So you could at least say, well, you know, they were pretty much, they, he did say it didn't have to be the best players, but one of the best players. So, um, you know, that's a pretty good uh, uh, yeah. claim, isn't it? So, yeah. Bruce is the only one in that crowd that has not won another major. Well, he's become good. I um, He won that open by seven shots, I think it he was. He did, yeah. Uh, it was very uh, Tiger Woods-like. He was the only one who beat Tony Lima's score in 1964. Yeah, it was very Tony Lima-like, I should say. <laughs> but he he should have won. Uh, I'm prejudiced here because I backed him when he should have won the Masters um, and Bubba Watson hit that shot out of the, mm -hmm. the woods. But he's a pretty good player. And I was watching player. him the other day. Um, you know, he's always there and thereabouts. He's a lovely-looking player. Great sort of rhythm and, and so on. So... Uh, um, but again, not only was golf gaining in popularity, but new golf courses were beginning to be built in the 60s. And that's how I then got into 
golf course architecture because I combined the two for for quite a while. So I was, you know, really amazingly fortunate. I was not only dead lucky to become a, a writer, but I was even dead lucky to become an architect. Mm. So, well, so. speaking of, let's stay with the writing for a moment more, if you don't mind. Yeah. You. You knew Bernard Darwin, who was, um, you know, people from my generation have, if you like architecture, you've you've discovered Darwin. You actually knew the man. What was he like as a person and a writer? I only met him once, um, and that was at Rye Golf Club, not long before he died. And he came to the president's putter, which he won himself, and he wrote, as I've said about it. Um, and he was sitting in the corner of the bar. And I'd come in having had a practice round. I was playing for Cambridge in that day. He'd come to see Oxford play Cambridge. And he was always um, tremendous partisan. He, 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 for the days of that match, I mean, he was a thousand percent Cambridge and Oxford, <laughs> the devils to be beaten. Right. You know? So when he saw me, um, he... He beckoned me over because I got my light blue blazer on, so he knew I was Cambridge, and he was like a, a lovely uncle. I mean, he he wanted to hear about it. He he clearly um, he didn't hear or see quite as well as he used to, but um, we were everybody knew that he was the sort of father of of golf writing, really, and that um, and beyond that, it wasn't just golf that he wrote about. That he was a um, you know, his, his hereditary with Charles Darwin and, and so on, um, Origin of the Species. But yeah, he was just a wonderful man. And um, I only only wish I could have met him, you know, more than once. And, and certainly at a later date, because when I met him, I didn't know I was going to be a writer. Then. <laughs> um, so uh, one of the first things that I did when I became golf writer was attend his memorial service in London. Mm. So he died in the later part of 1961, and I started in February. So, but I mean, um, you know, everybody looked down upon, looked up to Darwin. But we were so lucky in the 60s that the quality of the writers there, um, there was, you know, Pat Ward Thomas, Leonard Crawley, uh, Herb Wind, um, uh, who else? Um, the, you know, Henry were, Longhurst. Were, Henry Longhurst, of course. <laughs> How can I forget? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so they treated me like a sort of nephew, and I was just so lucky that, that you know they wanted, although we were strictly speaking rivals, you know they wanted good things and they did all they could to help and very quick with sort of praise if they'd read something that I'd written, you know. So it was a wonderful way to to um, uh, to be brought up, and you know I've had the most fantastic life. I don't think anybody else in golf could have something where. There was so much variety, um, and so. Um, well, you just you know. touched on it that 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 era, the '60s and then into the '70s, was. I, I've been I've gotten trouble for saying this before, and I was actually I think quoting um, Jerry Tardy, the great Golf Digest managing yeah, editor. Yeah, and uh, he he wrote once that that era was. Peter DeBrina was another one. Peter, yep, absolutely. And he wrote that that was kind of like a golden age of golf writing. Now, a lot of people would say, well, no, it was during Bernard Darwin's time with Horace Hutchins and, and Bernard Darwin and so forth. And and no arguments with that either. But but your era was really substantial. We, and 
we just mentioned uh, all the all the writers: Pat Ward Thomas, Peter Dobrander, Herbert Warren Wind, Alistair Cook, Henry Longhurst, uh, etc. Yourself. And one of the one of my first exposures uh, to your work, and it was probably unbeknownst to me, but when I was when I was very young, I picked up the World Atlas of Golf, and there are a, a lot of people like me who look at that volume of work as being their introduction to golf course architecture. And it's so seminal. And you wrote the long section about the golf course and how it developed from the early links into the modern era. And I didn't I did not know because the early editions don't say who wrote those. You have to kind of find out on your own, but you wrote that it was very influential to, to be able to uh, walk somebody through the evolution of architecture. That Walt Thomas uh, wrote the book really as though, and he was a good friend and, and Alistair Cook wrote the um, introduction, but just going back to the sixties and seventies, it was a wonderful period to write golf because we were allowed to write what we wanted to write. Nowadays, the emphasis is, Got on, you've got to quote all the players and you go to interviews and so on. There were no interviews or anything. You went and you gathered your information, you got help, and we pulled a certain amount of information. Then you sat down and you wrote your stuff, and, and that was it. And, and everybody did it in their different way. But um, now uh, I think that the, the emphasis is different. Everybody is seen it on television. Television is only just sort of coming into uh, vogue. The news bulletins were nothing like as uh, frequent, as, as many as they are now. And so people looked upon the paper in the morning to pick it up and find out what happened in the open. <laughs> now they go to bed and they know exactly what's happened as they've seen it on the television and, you know, they've been reminded. So it's difficult to get sort of slant. So I mean, I think the standard of golf writing is still very good and if they're given a chance to, to write. But, um, but they're not. I mean, or they do. It's but it's very, it's very. This happened. This happened. This happened. There's no. Uh, there's very little ability, as you mentioned. Maybe there. There's not space for it. But there's very little room to build a narrative, to tell a story, to to get the personalities of the players out. And that's a real criticism about modern golf over the last. I don't know. Go back twenty years or more. But about how how much uh, of a lack of diversity of personalities or. Uh, how the players seem very, very much the same, monotonous, mechanical. In your and you, so you began in the '60s through the '70s and '80s during this period where we look back now with nostalgia and say there are all these characters, all of these wonderful personalities, and everybody's game was different, and everybody expressed themselves differently through their swings and 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 the way their demeanors. And now we have this other kind of side of it where everybody looks sort of like robotic. Is that a is that a problem of the media? Is it a problem with the modern player just being too protected? Is it the the technology puts everybody's swing in the same kind of little box? Why why don't we have the diversity that that you experience as a writer? Well, I don't know. I think I think it's simply that um, modern uh, newspapers look upon it you know rather differently. Um, and now also you get regulations that the players have to conform with. If you're in the top three, you must attend. Um, for interviews after a round of golf. Um, it's not like will you or what, you know, whatever. In those days, um, as I say, interviews were, were, were relatively non-existent. Um, uh, I think it's also a reflection on the players that they ought to be able to know if you've gone out and watch a player, it should be your opinion of how you think he played, all right? There may be questions you'd like to ask him afterwards about, you know, one thing or the other, but... Um, I, I'm not quite sure that some of the 
uh, writers are as experienced or well qualified to make their own judgment. I, you know, that was something that I would whisper rather than shout, but uh, uh, I do, you know, rather feel that way. Um, uh, I don't enjoy reading the newspapers quite so much, simply as I say, because um, I, you know what's happened, and so you think, well. They're not telling you anything unless it's somebody that you think well, they played an exceptionally good round, and you want to see how the writers have appreciated, you know, what they've um, supposedly seen. But um, um, Darwin made the immortal remark once when they brought Max Faulkner in for a, <laughs> a view in 1951, and he was sort of shouting, and, and Darwin got up and said. What the devil's it matter what he thinks? He said, it's what we think that matters, he said, and stumbled out. <laughs> <laughs> that, sounds like, that sounds like Brandel Chambly or somebody. <laughs> but yeah. well, I, I, You know, I don't see the, the attraction of writing about golf. The golf that they write about and the golf that I was allowed and able to write about, it had, as they say, nothing else variety, and, and that was something. Um I think one of the advantages of playing is you've got to know players, and I didn't play with any sort of top professionals, but uh, um, I, you know I played in the odd golf tournament, uh, professional tournaments, and I played in one open, and you you could speak uh, to, um, by sort of player to, by player, and you 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 won much more information. <laughs> if you're walking around the golf course, you're more uh, liable to. To open up and you know um, uh, 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 listen to what people say, maybe about the golf course or a hole or whatever. You know, um, there were things that you picked up which became invaluable. But um, I think also there's, you're always quoting everybody nowadays, and that that uh, quotes can be very um, effective, but they mustn't be overdone. I think. Well, the, they have to be interesting quotes, right? Don't they have to be able? Yes. They have to be uh, illuminating somehow. Yes. yes well, is that a, yes. is that a, a myth that we carry around that the players of when you were reporting were had more to say or more something about them that was inherently interesting compared to what we <clears throat> see now, or is that is that well, nostalgia? That, yes, I think the, the the person who really set up the. Um, uh, the press interview after round was probably Arnold because uh, he always said that, you know, he realized these people, we, the writers, had a job to do and it was his job to try and help them do that job, um, which was a very um, uh, generous point of view. But he did sit there and and to give Jack his due, he'd sit there for hour upon hour upon hour after, particularly when he'd lost rather than when he'd won. Mm -hmm. Job to get him out of the press then. You always say, come on, Jack, that's enough, you know. But uh, so um, that was, as I say, a, a voluntary thing. Uh, there was no compunction. Um, the, the RNA or the USGA or whoever didn't, you know, make them do. I suppose the Masters had a, a um, Charlie Yates was the sort of press officer there. And, and they used to bring guys in and he used to sort of sit there and ask them a few questions and so on. And. But it was, you know, more informal. But uh, that's how it all sort of began in the 50s and early 60s. There were no, well, the press tents were not big enough to have a press conference anyway. So when you think that, I think for the 1964 Open, there were probably 
it was a little bell tent behind the 18th Green of St Andrews. They probably had 20 at the most there, and now they've got 2,000. I think it, the media centre, and it's like a sort of a special um, building like they have at Augusta. I haven't seen the, the latest one in yeah. Augusta. Although now the story is in the press, in the media tents, about how few people there are there, because, you know, newspapers used to have, every newspaper in the country used to have a, a golf writer who followed the tour, and now they're... There are only like three writers who report on it's every exactly, tournament. For It's exactly the same here. That was the point I was going to make. I think there are only two of our papers, the Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mail, Derek Lawrence and Peter Corrigan, or Jim James Corrigan. Um, the others are all uh, freelance who do supply the newspapers with um, whatever they want, but they're not salaried, not members of the staff and so on, um, because the papers have tried to cut down on their... The, the number of their staff and they don't have to pay pensions and national insurance. <laughs> well, that goes back uh, to your earlier point and you hit it just at the right time to be in this golden era of writing and newspaper reporting and full press tents and, and a, a, a band that traveled around and followed the tournaments. I don't envy them. You know, I'd much rather what we had and, and you know, we made an awful lot of friends and that was another thing. You know? um, so, uh, um, there was one thing I, I was just going to mention we're talking about golf courses if I'm not sort of shooting off at a tangent. No, let's, you want let's to follow that. Yeah, go ahead. But only that um, the thing that the two things that have um, had seen a dramatic improvement is the um, quality of teaching. And everybody now, all the kids get taught at a very early age. I like nothing better than to go up to our golf car. We don't play anymore and just listen to the assistants teaching these guys because the assistants are taught how to teach and so they teach remarkably well. Um, they don't teach uh, a system uh, as such, but there is a great similarity in the way people now swing the club and you can go a long way before you see uh, what you might term an eccentric or poor swing. Now, having said that, the other day with uh, Matthew Wolfe and DeChambeau, they, they were a little bit uh, quirky, I suppose you'd say. But the emphasis, apart from that, is that you then need places to teach. And in Britain particularly, the thing that need is practice ground driving ranges. Um, and it's all very well extending golf courses, but you've also got to extend driving ranges because they need to now be of the order of probably 400 yards long and 100 yards wide. Well, a lot of our golf courses, famous golf courses, didn't have a, a practice ground. Um, and some of them do are becoming increasingly inadequate. So, you know, with the emphasis so much on teaching and that sort of thing, this is something that's, you know, being left behind. Um, uh, so, um, you know, that that is, is really... Uh, you know, I think a, a genuine point, if you're going to build a golf course, the first thing you think of is not perhaps where the first tee is or the 18th green, where are we going to put, you know, all the uh, practice facilities and you need probably short game chipping areas and so on. So you probably need, you know, 15, 20 acres if you've got it, just purely for um, uh, practice. Um, and uh, how many courses in Britain have that? Very, very few. Mm. So, uh, you know, I, 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 that is is a very big change that, I, you know, one has seen, and I think it's all to the good. Um, 
people didn't have lessons in the old days, A, because they thought that they were taking an unfair advantage, always had a lesson, you know. B, probably because very few of the pros could teach well, um, and C, there was nowhere <laughs> that they could practice because there wasn't a practice ground, and so um, there was nowhere to teach either. So these things have, have changed, you know, really very dramatically. And I mean, that, that's all for the good. And I think it's wonderful to see how well these people play, um, particularly the ladies. I mean, you see these little Orientals and they stand there and they hit it miles, don't they? I mean, <laughs> um, that's down both to the preparation and their fitness, but also to the um, the equipment, the ball and the, and the clubs. And I suppose maybe the ladies have benefited more from modern equipment than the men. I don't know. But, uh, mm. What do you think it was the, or some of the biggest differences in golf course architecture coming out of World War II compared to prior to the Depression, you know, prior to the 1910s and 1920s, what we consider the golden age? What were some of the biggest differences? Because golf, at least in the United States, really looked different and, and be, the architects and developers began to build a different brand of golf, a different style of golf coming out of World War II in the 50s and 60s. What do you see as the biggest changes? I don't think that they changed that much. Um, uh, they obviously got longer and they had to adjust the tees and the, the, the position of bunkering and so on. But uh, I think um, the architects of the 50s and 60s that uh, I was brought up to, we learned to respect the pioneers of the cults and so on. And we didn't think that we would do any better than that. So we tended to maintain that sort of uh, uh, tradition. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, um, a lot of it has to do with, you mentioned development and the development of new golf courses. And especially, and again, in the United States, once you get into the 1960s and 70s, you have a lot of housing development courses and uh, other environmental and, and economic factors influence the way golf holes look. Yeah, and I think that's influenced the UK as well. And the one thing that um, is so different now, we we have quite a lot of water hazards and things on reservoirs, lakes and things on our courses, which is a, a an offshoot of um, the United States. Um uh, and uh, that in the right place is, is very good. Um, uh, and uh, the bunkering is, is the thing that I suppose um, is rather overdone now. Most modern courses have sort of bunkers everywhere. And the one thing that strikes me watching golf is that people would almost rather be in a bunker than in the rough or sometimes on the fairway. And they hit fantastic shots out of bunkers. I, a, it's because I think they can get the ball. They hit down hard and they can get the ball up quickly. But, you know, they can hit four or five irons out of the bunkers and almost as if they'd rather be there. Good players, for sure. Yeah, oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, whereas um, our style of bunkers, and it does depend, the style of bunker depends on the type of ground and so on and the sort of course that you're going to have. Um with the small bunkers at St Andrews with rivets, you would only just get in there, you just, just get it out. There's nothing else you could do. There still isn't anything else you could do. So you, you do wonder whether it's actually, um, 
making it easier to have some of the bunkers, and some of them are really quite shallow. That you could hit any shot, any club in the, in the bag out of out of them. But, uh, well, what was you know. your philosophy on bunkering, and how did you? Uh... Well, try to keep it to as minimum as possible. Again, it depends on the, on on the type of bunker. You know, whether you were building on heavy soil, if you're going in sands, or you could go down deep, or whether you had to build the bunker sort of above the ground rather than in the ground. Revetting is really only for the seaside courses. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, I mean... Did you consider bunkering, um, did you consider bunkers, did you want them to play as, as hazards, as a half-stroke penalties? Yes. I think that's how I was brought up, and so I intended to think that I'm thinking as a player rather than an architect. Yes, you, you probably thought that uh, that was the, the way... Um, but uh, I mean, now um, it used to be two styles of architecture. There was the strategic and the penal. The strategic was uh, presenting plenty of options and that you could play every single uh, shot with three or four different clubs. And the penal was where you hit a really good shot and you fail by a couple of inches to make the green and you fall in the water and so on. So you're heavily punishment. The punishment should fit the crime. And I think some of our courses um, have gone a little bit that way. And I think architects, because they've got to uh, meet the modern demands, have um, it's now all through the air, fly the ball on. And so they've been led into you know, being a little more devilish. And I, I don't like to see all those huge collars of rough round greens where you know it's ten yards from the pin, and you need almost a full swing to get it back on the green, um, uh, and and then they hide the greens, uh, the, the pins. Well, pin position's always been part of the setting up of a golf course, but you know some of the bunker, the greens, you know, get rolls and then they roll off and so on. So that's getting rather more into the penal side than in, than the strategic. Uh, so, uh, I'd like to just follow up on that briefly because there's something that you wrote that really struck with me. And I, I've, I read it a few days ago, and I've been thinking about it quite a lot lately. And it's it's you wrote it's a belief that there should be more than one way of approaching any shot, and that's what you're talking about. You know, you could you could play it high, low, use different clubs, and that strikes me as the yeah. essence of golf. That's how golf was for centuries, essentially. And now, when you look around, and and it's not just the the tours. It's if you go to any golf course or club and, and play with somebody anybody almost you'll notice that almost everybody has their one swing and no matter what the shot is they hit the same drive they try to hit the same drive they put the ball in the same place in their stance to try to hit the same iron shot no matter what the architecture is doing and i wonder if if you think that that is a result of is it just something that's just the way golfers are or is it the does the equipment allow them to do it is it because golf's hard or is it is it the architecture did architecture begin to go in some direction where it really took away the the amount of options and variability that players had at their disposal? I think it's because the players are so damn good, actually. I mean, the, the, the standard of wedge play is phenomenal. When you see shots played, um, I was talking about bunkers, but when you watch TV cast for three or four hours, you see it's very rare for somebody not to get down in two out of a bunker. And more often than not, you'll see two or three bunker shots whole or chip shots in, those, in my day, you'd probably go all summer and you'd only see somebody in a hole of chips up or there'd be a hole in one. So they are firing at the pin. You know, they're much more um, uh, 
accurate. But going back to the choice of, of play, I mean, take an example of uh, uh, the ninth green at the old course at St. Andrews, it's absolutely dead flat, and the green is just a continuation of the fairway. It's a great big thing, and you could be 30 yards short of the green, um, and you could play the, sh the shot with any club in the bag. But what do the best players play? Uh, a lob lofted wedge? Um, we were always taught that if there was no obstruction in front, don't create one. So uh, and that was more a question of um, playing the odds. But um, they, they are just devilishly good with um, with, with pitching clubs. Um, and talking about scoring, um, you know, you can look at the scores and you need to be four under par to, to, to qualify, to make the cut, you know. Um, in, in the old days, you, you'd lead with that, you know, a score like that. So um, th that's the biggest change that there's been. And it's not just the pros, it's the good amateurs. The good amateurs look like the good pros, don't they? I mean, they get far more attention to play. They're not truly amateurs. They get into squads and, you know, um, most of them are aspiring to become pros. Um, but it, that to me is, is, is just phenomenal. Everybody that you see on television is good. <laughs> Um, that brings us back yeah. to uh, uh, something you brought up in an interview I, I saw online uh, with a something called Golf Conversations. But you were quoting a, a Tom Simpson quote about how he said, you know, what, what would he do to golf to make it better? He said, adopt the American ball, ban the wedge. And that's going back to your comment about Seve, thinking we should only have one wedge and use half the amount of clubs in your bag. And that strikes me as, as really getting back to the fundamentals, if you could do those things. Unspoken, if you think anybody was traditional then, you know, just think again, because Tom was, mm -hmm. you know, but he was a great friend of my uh, early um, senior partner as an architect, Ken Cotton. So I did have, um, you know, quite a lot of feeling for, for Tom Simpson. And they were great characters and, and they didn't have any qualification. They had knowledge of golf. And most of them were fairly well to do. And so they could um, afford to, uh, um, go out there without worrying too much if they didn't get jobs immediately and so on. But once they did, of course, um, uh, they were uh, away. Um, Simpson, on the other hand, used to drive around in a Rolls Royce. So, right, yeah. Uh, he let them know that, well, he wasn't exactly hard up, you know. <laughs> but I think those characters and, and, and the things that they used to say, uh, you know, they were very, very true. And um, a lot of them still have a lot of... Uh, um, truth about them, really. I'm not one to. I never want to tell anybody how to play golf. Um, everybody should uh, enjoy it and, and do it for their own reasons and, and and take as much joy out of it as is possible in their own way. But I, I do think that if I, I think we went through a long period of time where the where the architecture and the golf courses that people played, the majority of people played, didn't give them the options. I mean, there were a lot of there were decades that went by when when most architects would would put bunkers as you mentioned before in front of green so you didn't have an option any option but to hit something over them and and you didn't and you have to carry a wetland or carry a stretch of rough off the tee so you i mean you the emphasis constantly goes as you mentioned a minute ago again just to hit the ball high so the architecture didn't help in that regard but i do think that if if you could adopt the tom simpson idea of Banning, you know, using one wedge or banning the wedge, using half the amount of clubs to force you to play different shots, and you had golf courses that 
we're seeing now in kind of an era where we're getting some really interesting big broad golf courses with really interesting contours and features if we had that style of golf course that's more available to more people and this Simpson mentality, I think we'd start to see a, a change in the way that the average player plays the game. That And that would be an interesting development. Yeah, sure. I, um, I, I think it's nice to think that you play golf in countries like the UK and parts of America where you have four distinct seasons. So you play um, your golf course, which could change quite markedly from week to week, month to month. If you play in certain parts of the world, and that's not a criticism, you play under the same conditions mm-hmm. day after day that's after day. And so you, you play the same sort of golf. Now, that's that's fine, and it gives tremendous fun, but it's still nice if you can get a little bit of variety. That's, that's all. And, and in the type of golf that you play, rather than um, you, you just turn up and play the same four ball and you keep your score or you don't do maybe a special competition. <laughs> right. Uh, that's about it, you know. But I think the the idea of exploring, and that is something that golf and the, the ease of travel and so on, um, it does give people the opportunity to go and do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. Um, uh, and, and, you know, they can fly off to various places. Um, the one place that they perhaps don't go often enough is, is Australia because it, it really a, is a hell of a long way. But the, their courses are, well, again, you've got four different climates like the United States. It's not all like Melbourne. Queensland is, right, um, yeah. you know, uh, Norman came from is, is very different. But uh, so that's why, you know, I, I, I think we, you know, we are very fortunate over here. But uh, how did the the uh, so you got into in the mid sixties is when you began your architecture career? How did coming into the profession in the sixties, late sixties, throughout the seventies, early eighties? How did that era influence the way you designed golf courses and the way that you viewed golf? That was a very particular moment in time. The late sixties, it was beginning to get more new golf courses. Up until nineteen sixty, there were actually no new golf courses in the UK. There were a lot of being salvaged after the war. Um, then it was because Ken Cotton had two new courses that he invited me to go and see them. Um, I think when eventually, you know, he asked me, well, I say eventually, when he did ask me to go out and I've got my first job, you know, it was all rather terrifying. And I had no, um, it was all instinct and observation. Uh, there was no form of training, there was no manual that you could read to see what rules are. And so you really are on your own, and that's true of all the architects from the, from the beginning. There's very little that's committed to golf to tell you how you're going to build a, or design a golf course. Um, so, yeah, you were, you were very much on your own, but you then started to think of other courses. You wouldn't copy, but what influenced you, and therefore what can you introduce into uh, um, you know, the courses? But basically, tees and greens, you've got to find really nice green positions if you get ice cream positions, you know, they're the target of every course on every, every hole on every course in the world, um, and bunkers and so on. Or is there other natural feature, trees and so on? Is, is there movement in the ground? Is it uh, subject to the wind? And, and all these are factors in, in how the course is going to play and the challenge it's going to create. Um, so I think, yeah, you're very much on your own. Um, you need to have somebody that you can consult to ask, you know, you respect their opinion. And I had two other um, distinguished um, 
players who were architects, Frank Pennick and Charles Laurie. So, but you actually, you don't see other people's uh, work. You, you, you can't, there isn't very often anybody to ask, or not when you're on the spot, because you're there on your own, you know. But um, you, you, you get help with uh, some of the, constru- the contractors, the constructors, and you change your ideas a little bit as you go along. And so you build up this, this team that's responsible. But um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> when I look back, I think, how the hell did I have the frontery to think that I was an architect? <laughs> but everybody has to start somewhere, don't they? I mean, the other thing is that, that always intrigues me is that you can't comp- you, you, you can't say, well, um, what would uh, Trent Jones have made of uh, um, uh, Augusta or what would um, Pete Dye have done on um, Cypress Point and so on? There's only one guy who gets the chance, you know, mm-hmm. and he's, uh, whether he made a good job, mostly I think they, they do. And I think there are a lot of very good architects. No question. Did you know Trent Jones? Well, I, I, I haven't seen a lot of his courses. I met him once or twice. He was quite a nice old uh, thing. I, I mean, I know um, Reese Jones a little bit. Um, Young Trent, I, uh, Robert. Um, I mean, I think he's a good architect, but but they got in the game because of their father, and a lot of that's happened. It gets handed down. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, again, you you really don't always see that much work of other people, and when you perhaps sit on a panel to to do rankings and so on, it's quite difficult because you <laughs> you, you haven't always seen them, and, and most of the people who who are ranking, have only seen maybe 10, 15% of, of all golf courses. I mean, that doesn't sound very much, but it is actually quite a lot when you think about it. So, uh, well, by the time you, you came to the United States and began designing courses, you have a nice little collection uh, resume over here. How would your, had your views on design evolved or changed since the, say, the 1970s and, and that era? In the States? Yeah. Well, I... I think because this is, this would be later in your career, so I guess the question would be, you know, how how had you grown and how had your views evolved as an architect? Well, I think you you work in, in more countries, so that you have to adjust to the climate and uh, what's applicable in UK. Forget about that; you've got to do what's best um, in Florida or whatever. Um, um, one of the really nice courses, the fun courses. Um, remarkable settings is uh, the one in Primland, which is up in the edge of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's right on top of the hill <clears throat> and uh, with amazing views. And uh, um, we had a fr- free hand, except that a lot of the um, golf, a lot of the golf holes had to be knocked into shape. We tend to frown and we used to frown on using a lot of shaping and moving dirt and all the rest of it. But if it's the only thing to do, then it's the only thing to do. But the skill lies in making it look as if nobody's done a thing. You know, when it's finished, it just looks as if it's part of the, the scene. So we, I think, learned a little bit of, of that. Um, and the four or five courses that I was involved with in Canada and, and the United States, there was no particular similarity between them. Um, Partly again because of the climate, and, and partly because of the um, the location, um, the soil, um, whatever. So, every course is different. You have to do whatever's best 
for each particular individual site and uh, you have to make the best of what you're given within the budget you're given and right we always work and had to work with tight tighter budgets than they do over here i do in the states um you know they're costing millions and millions and i, I read i think only last week in global golf post <laughs> jack nicholas's fee for a designing a golf course is now three million dollars <laughs> <laughs> not it's good work if you can get it right that's funny if you get global golf posts you look into this week and you'll see so i take it you never charge three million for a commission <laughs> the golf course is going to be 25 30 million you know well the more it costs the the, the more you try to keep the price of the game down and i think that is a, a slight worry in that um yeah if you're going to encourage more and more people to um to play, then you've got they've got to be able to afford to play, and so on. And if you know if you're building something for 25 million, um, all right, they have a lot of real estate and all that sort of thing. So it's not as if they don't make money. I'm not saying that, but um, there is a, a, you know a slight responsibility, and that value for money is still that's what the thing about the Scots they. It's so popular because everybody can afford to play. Yeah, there's an that's the tension though that we live with, right? Is because we want golf to be accessible and affordable to everybody. That's the beauty of this sport, and yet there's yeah. always been a segment of it that is very luxurious and and elitist in a way. And this is an example when you and as an architect that puts I can imagine that puts an architect in a certain dilemma because you want to support public golf you want to support low impact golf golf courses that are easy to maintain people can play and yet if a developer comes to you and wants to spend 30 million dollars or more on a project and wants to hire you what are you going to do are you going to walk away from that in, in the uk we we've been brought up to you know our courses are simple and natural and, and that's what we tend to think is the way everything should be but you know that isn't but that's just a characteristic of, of the uk which i think is a good one but um uh, it is, you know, possible for everybody to play, and, and the little there's no social stigmas or anything either. I mean, these little villages in Scotland they all have their golf course, and the village sort of revolves around the golf course, and everybody with their doctors, lawyers, or whatever, or shopkeepers, uh, you know, they all join the same club and they all play together. That's the nice thing about if you play in a big tournament, you just play with who you put with. You don't argue. You can't change it. And you get to know people who perhaps don't have very much in common, but you very quickly build up a, a, a sort of bit of a bond. And very often you end up, you know, the best of friends. And yet you you come from, you know, entirely different uh, walks of life and parts of the world and so on. But, uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, I think that, you know, going back to your writings and what you've talked about, and, and you just mentioned it a moment ago that, you know, if you had it your way, you wouldn't move a lot of land. You want to just use the earth as you find it. I, I know uh, you'd love to have a sandy site, but you, but especially going back to the United States work, you'd built a, go a golf course in the mountains of Virginia, in uh, the low country of South Carolina, on, yeah. on Martha's Vineyard, in Rhode Island, in Canada, and the very different sites, very different soils, very different climates. It, it's not probably possible to always execute a sort of traditionalist um view of golf course design on such wide environments no i don't think so no i think you there's certain principles you have to adhere to but um as i say they're not roles uh 
Uh, and uh, the more Latin Earth you move, the more, the more it's going to cost. Now, some clients think if it's going to be better by moving Earth, then move it, you know. But um, um, we worked for Peter de Savary, and, and he liked the idea that um, we could keep the cost of golf courses below the level that he thought that uh, was necessary. So it didn't actually stop him from saying they cost 25 million or <laughs> The thing was, he could get it done for a couple of million dollars or three million dollars or whatever it was. Right. We built a course in Sri Lanka, and that really was going back to the beginning because we had elephants and um, wow. uh, natural uh, things. <laughs> and it was, done, it was built by hand. There was very little machinery, um, and they dredged the sand out of the river in order to build the greens. And it, it was amazing, and even with irrigation, it was built for not much more than a million dollars, but that was an exception. But that's again how lucky I, you know, been to have this Ferrati. There was another course in Gomera, which is in the Canary Islands off the African coast, and that was hewn out of um, stone and, and, and so on. Um, and we brought in sand from the Sahara to, to make the fairways, but. Uh, it was an awful lot of construction. Now there, there was a huge amount of machine work. You couldn't have done anything without it. But, you know, if you go there today, you probably wouldn't um, appreciate how much it had been. The other nice feature is that the, the clubhouse is down at the bottom. The top part is 200 meters higher. So we thought, well, we can't play up. So we buggy them up to the top. The first tee is right on the top of the hill. And then the 18 holes is coming down and it's all downhill or cross hill and, and down to the clubhouse at the bottom. But, uh, so that would be one of the most difficult golf courses probably ever been built. Where is that? Where is this again? This is Gomera, um, which is one of the Canary Islands just to the west of Tenerife. Uh -huh. They're off. They're, they're Spanish um, owned. You know, they come under the Spanish flag, but they're off the coast of. Um, Africa, um, there's Lanzarote and uh, um, there's f five of them altogether. How long would uh, it take? Did it take to get the players up to the top? In the oh, yeah, about five minutes. Five minutes in a buggy. Uh huh. And then they played eighteen holes all the way down. Yeah, quite enjoy that. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. It was owned by um, Fred Olson, the shipping line. You've heard of Fred Olson? It's his land, um, and this was back in the. Late nineties, I suppose. Oh, wow. That was that was different. Uh, so th th you know that shows the extremes that you get, and you have to do what's right for the bit of ground you've been given. You know, um, and that you you really didn't you couldn't put a price on that till you till you went along because uh, there were so many hidden factors that you couldn't have estimated what it was going to cost. Mm -hmm. but, uh, I had um, an old employee or partner of yours, uh, Tom McKenzie, on the podcast a, a, uh, yeah. a while ago, uh, and he mentioned a project. I don't think they've begun building it, but it was on the boards, and it was an, another island off the coast of Africa. Um, I'm drawing a blank on which island it was, but it sounded very similar where you'd play from an extremely high section of the island down to... Right out in the middle of the... It was not Christmas Island, but one of those out in the middle of the Atlantic. It is, yeah. I, I wish I could... I can't recall the name of the island right now, but it was... Um, that was the... First time I think I heard of that concept, but you actually built that uh, course similar to that. I mean, I should say that when I started on my own in, in 1987, we built 75 courses or roughly 
it, between then and 2005 when I stood down. But the first thing I did was to appoint two guys who'd never done any work at all, uh, who were just fresh from college. One was Tom and the other was Martin Ebert. Martin Ebert, yeah. Um, they never had to say, what shall I do today? Um, and we, you know, we, we did a fantastic, prolific, um, and they were invaluable in, in terms of, you know, you couldn't all do it yourself. No architect could do it himself, whatever he tells you. Um, so, uh, and they've, they've and then, done well for themselves uh, in the last decade or well, so. Yeah, but the, the difference is that in 15 years, they've only built two new golf courses. All their work is changes to existing courses, um, which is um, it's good. But in the long run, then I don't know. It's a, obviously, they much prefer to, to build new golf courses, but they just don't seem to be around. There's some that, you know, they look as if they could turn into something, but they don't. And, and, but, I, you know, I now I keep out of it. I've not nothing to do with them, um, except, you know, wish them well, of course. And the guy who used to work for me who works for them, he does all the computer stuff and drone flying and so on. He's fantastic. But uh, So I see him a lot, but that's more on a you know, friendly basis, social basis. He helps with my wife, who's, who's 90 and has got Alzheimer's. So, <laughs> uh, uh, but no, it was, it was fantastic. And, and that, that, you know, those last 15 years were even more crazy. So, um, it's, it, is, it is another indication of that you kind of hit it at the right time. It's funny to be in the business now. For there, And there are a lot of really talented young people coming through the business, but they're really going to have to make their living doing renovation and restoration and remodel work, which is not a bad thing. But they won't get the opportunities that you had to build new golf courses and to travel the world. And to, architects are judged by the courses that they design. Yes. And yes. There's no way, is it? Um, so, um, you know, again, it's just um, uh, their slight misfortune, but it's fate. It's not nothing you can, can sort of control, but uh, they're still hoping that the phone will ring and they'll be off to, to build 36 holes somewhere in Paradise Island, you know. So. Well, there'll always be those projects out there somewhere. It's just who gets the phone call and how many yeah. people get the phone call. How many courses, new courses, do you think there are in the States? Are there more now than there were? I, I mean, I read various, you know, publications and news bulletins. Well, I'll tell you, we've, you know, Golf Digest every year does the best new course of the year, and, and we just wrapped up our issue for that. I can't say on the podcast who won, but there were 15, oh, no, no, there were 15 golf many... courses this year that qualified. Nine of the 15 that would be considered new were built on top of or a remodel of an existing course so there were so that means there were six basically new from the ground up projects in the united states and canada that were considered this year there's others a change but they've still got the, the original name or whatever yeah. yeah they sometimes they they've changed ownership and been redeveloped and rebranded but compared and i'm doing a retrospective going back through time and in 2000 for instance we the magazine used to name had different categories even there was best affordable public and we listed the top 10 finishers but there were probably another 30 golf courses that didn't even get listed and then the top uh upscale new courses we listed the top 10 but not another 30 best new private so it's now we scrape the bottom of the barrel just to get enough new golf courses to even qualify for one yeah. award the, the, the one great sadness was last year with that terrible hurricane off um 
um, Florida that we lost. Um, uh, oh, the Abaco Club. Abaco, yes. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that it'll ever surface again. I mean, I think the golf course will be fine because it was on sand and there wasn't really an awful lot to um, to change. And I think the grass, it was a perspalum, which was of salt um, tolerant. Um, I, I guess that's probably all right, but uh, the whole rest of the island just practically demolished. So nobody's going to go there. And uh, I don't know what the situation is at the moment, but that's rather distressing, I must admit. Yeah, I'm, I know. <laughs> That's part of it's part of the life cycle of golf courses. Um, even even the golf courses that don't get wiped out by nature sometimes get remodeled, like we just said. You built the Vineyards Club on Martha's Vineyard, which has recently been. Yeah, well, that, I think was it Gil Hans. Or yeah, Gil Hans like remodeled it. I haven't seen it, but it's um, it's different well, than I, it was. Entirely, hundred percent changed, but they got some more land. Well, of course, if you do that, and then you know. Um, uh, there it is. I, I don't know who still owns it. There were four partners, I think. It wasn't uh, one of the guys used to be a, um, on the rules committee of the USGA. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, let's wrap up by I'll ask you a few questions. The first is: Is there one golf course that you designed, an original golf course that you wish more people could go see or play, or, or have that golf course be better known? You think that's worthy of, of more attention than it? That it gets well, it's Rimland, and I mentioned it simply because of its uh, scenic beauty. I mean, it's like a course like no other. Um, um, I did quite a lot of work at St Andrews. Um, changed the, um, I mean, I did the uh, um, master plan, mm-hmm. which was probably the the best work in many respects. Um, the major change to the the Jubilee course, which is probably now the the most, um, they say, the most difficult, um, but you know that. But it, again, it was more to create uh, <clears throat> the um, improved practice facilities, which were non-existent in scenario. It's amazing to think that until 1985, you couldn't <laughs> go and hit balls anywhere. Um, you just had to go on the beach and hit four or five <laughs> before you, and so on. So that was good. And then we built, um, we changed the the. Uh, the Eden, which was had to be part of uh, all the other alterations, because they moved the clubhouse, the old grand Pilmure cottage, and then we built this um, uh, Strathtarum, which was to be a- equivalent of the old um, uh, Jubilee, the short course for the old people, and so on. And so there was, a, you know, really quite a big change to the whole of the. Um, the golf in St Andrews, and, and you know that it was. We didn't touch the old course, other than look at one or two little tiny things, you know. But uh, there's really not an awful lot you can do without being, I think, be classed as sacrament. Yeah, so, right. That, newest, best to leave that alone as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Those would be. I mean, if you're looking at ones that are like no other than the one I mentioned in um, Gomera and the one in Sri Lanka, I suppose. I agree. But, uh, um, I think you're, you're usually best left other people to, to judge your work. And, um, you get a certain amount of, um, you get a great deal of satisfaction out of nearly all of the work you do. And sometimes the, the most satisfying are the smaller ones which you turned um, you know, something not very promising into something quite good for a very s- small amount of money, you know. So uh, it's not just, you know, the, the ground, the, the course up in lights. That, uh, um, so 
yeah. And also worked um, in, in so many different countries. There was a course in, um, in Sweden called Vasebeck, which was nice. And that's a lovely one in the south part of, of, of Sweden. Um, so, you know, as I say, they, they all give you great, um, great satisfaction. Um, that's the joy of the work. Are there any... Do you have any regrets architecturally, or, or did you did you ever think that you made a mistake, or or would you like a do over on any particular golf course? Um, I suppose you have regrets. I, I mean, I, I I couldn't make a, a long list. Um, uh, we've kept out of the law courts. We never, you know, you're responsible for the construction and everything like that as well. So to that extent, we haven't made any disastrous mistakes. Uh, I went in without having to, you know, invest any money my my own, and I, you know, I didn't borrow any to to do it, and so it all happened. It was just again an amazing part of the story, really. But uh, uh, I mean, I think sometimes you think certain holes don't uh, turn out quite as well as you thought they would, and some of the ones that you didn't think were going to be very good turn out actually to be uh, among the best. So, um, uh, but I think you know those sort of things. You, you tend to keep to yourself, but it's nothing that I nothing I would need to keep secret, if you know what I mean. Right, right. Yeah, you don't want to tell the, the person who pay, wrote the paycheck that you didn't get your best effort. <laughs> we only had one person who defaulted on payment, so. It sounds like you dodged some bullets. That's good. Um, yeah. Last question, then. What did, if you had only one golf course to play for the rest of your life, what would it be? Well, um, originally, in terms of beauty, then uh, I was very taken by Turnbury, um, you know, just scenically, and I it played quite a big part in the early part of my uh, writing life and playing life. I played in the uh, Amateur Championship in 1961. Um, now it's all different, so it's probably not I mean, the, the scenery is the same. So, for, for the joy of being in a beautiful spot to play golf and. I'm very much influenced by the setting of golf courses. Um, that would be one. And for that reason, you know, I would say Cypress Point as well. That's where I played with Bing Crosby. <laughs> um, and Rye, I guess, because that's where I've played a, a lot of competitive golf and had the most fun. So, you know, those would be the three that uh, uh, I would choose. What an incredible life in golf. That's the legendary Donald Steele. And I don't use the word legendary lightly. If you think about his contributions to golf across the board, from beginning with his reporter days, writing about golf tournaments, writing about professional players, the biggest events, his contribution to golf literature, the books he's written, obviously as a golf course architect, building golf courses around the world, to his accomplishments as a player, his mentorship of a new generation of architects, He's been one of the wisest and steadiest and most learned voices of golf, especially in the UK. I think that all counts as a, as a legendary life in golf and golf architecture. You know, I mentioned this in the intro, how Steele views golf largely through tournament golf, professional golf, the, the ace player. He's a great player himself, and I know he thinks that's a very important attribute in designing a golf course to be able to understand the shots. And he thinks that way, and understandably, I believe, because when you begin your career covering professional golf, 
your first formidable <laughs> reporting jobs are watching Arnold Palmer win Open Championships in thrilling fashion, watching the, the greats of the game come through, getting to know them up close, being able to communicate that amongst a, a generation of, of golf writers that is also legendary. He, he mentioned that professional golfers are our heroes. And I think there's some truth to that. So it is interesting when, when we're having this discussion that I'm thinking in architectural terms and, and concepts and, and how players play shots. And I'm I'm thinking in my head, I, I'm not maybe expressing this to him, but in my head I'm automatically thinking of, of the 10 handicap, the 15 handicap, the 20 handicap, the, the people that you and I both see on the golf course uh, repeatedly. And he's thinking the same scenario, but the, the picture that he's pulling is of a different player of uh, a Tony Lima or a Jack Nicholas or a Tony Jacklin probably uh, and how they would play the shot so uh, it, we were just coming at it from slightly different perspectives both valid but I'd like to express my thanks to Donald Steele he's another architect that I've wanted to talk to for a long time in fact he was on my uh, very original list uh, short list of, of architects that I wanted to have on back in gosh, whatever, it was 2017 when I started this podcast, so it was a long time coming. Uh, I finally got Donald Steele. Check that off the list. That's a, uh, It was a very enjoyable conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. What a great guy, a great gentleman. Um, I use this opportunity right now to encourage you to go to iTunes or your favorite podcast provider and leave a rating and review for, for Feed the Ball. Subscribe to Feed the Ball. I appreciate the feedback. It helps with the algorithms to promote the podcast, uh, so I'm told. So if you could help me out by uh, making a few clicks of the mouse or with your fingers on your phone, that would that would help me out quite a bit. I appreciate it. Once again, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Feed the Ball. You can also find me in Golf Digest. I've got uh, a few stories in the uh, in issue 10. I had a chance to go to Pinehurst to cover the what amounts to the National Championship of High School Golf. And uh, I've got some good stories to tell and, and relay from that week in a, in a very nice feature story in, in uh, Issue 10. So pick up that issue if you haven't seen it yet. You can also download that on any of your uh, mobile devices. That's the Golf Digest Digital Edition. But that's enough of that for now. I'll let you go. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks again to Donald Steele. I appreciate you all very much. Thanks to the Sundogs for the music. And until we get a chance to do this again, adios.